Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where you get to have fancy dinner with whatever historical figure you want. I'm Sarah, and tonight, I'm having grilled cheese with Catherine the Great. And I'm Emily, and I'm taking edibles with Nixon. Uh... Shrek would have worked there too. I think the joke would have landed either way. I don't know why I thought of Shrek first, but I laughed for quite a long time after I wrote that down. Who doesn't think of Shrek first? Watching a lot of McElroy content and just like, just Shrek is inherent. Now, I I don't know um, at all the basis of that joke, but no, the joke was that like Shrek is not a historical figure. That was. Shrek has nothing to do oh, with, no, I, I guess, fairy tales in some way. It's more the whole concept of the, of the joke, because I don't really know what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Mad King Ludwig, uh, who is... I'm talking about royals again, because I am obsessed, I guess. This seems to be a, a through line in my episodes. I just pick a random historical... Like a little lord over there. Yeah. Pick a random historical noble. Um, I picked Mad King Ludwig in particular because I just booked this trip to Germany. And uh, that's kind of his, well, King. he was like king of Bavaria in the mid to late 1800s. And Bavaria is the cute part of Germany where they wear later hose and have pretzels all the time, yes? Yes. Bavaria is like the Oktoberfest sort of region. It's where you get all like the medieval fairy tale villages. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where my family that's not from Scotland is from. <laughs> Yeah, so it is, like, when you think of Germany, that's kind of what Bavaria is. Bavaria is very pop culture German. Um, And you think also kind of like fairy tale castles. And a lot of those fairy tale castles we associate with this region of Germany happen to be the result of Dear Mad King Ludwig. So I wanted to give a little biography of him today. He's pretty cool. Just speaking of Bavaria, I would like to have my bachelorette party in Leavenworth at the Nutcracker Museum. So, um... That is all. Deal. <laughs> I know you're saying it is a funny joke. I think that would be hella fun. No, I think Let's that's where it. we're going for our mini honeymoon. <laughs> so my sources for this are the ever-helpful um, Wikipedia, Britannica, How Stuff Works, The New York Times, The Independent, and the official websites of Schloss... <laughs> oh, boy. Gonna have to pronounce a lot of German in this one. Schloss Neuschwanstein? Uh, Schloss Linderhof. Uh, German is like the one language that I can pronounce on site uh, most of the time. So if you need help. It's, it's pretty easy. It's just that there's a lot of S's and I already have bad enunciation. Uh, so Schloss- I'm glad Schloss- you got into podcasting. Yeah. Schloss Neuschenstein. There you uh, go. Schloss Linderhof and uh, Fusen, the town of Fusen. So Ludwig II, born August 25th, 1845, was a member of the House of Wittelsbach, which was the noble family that ruled over Bavaria, as you said, kind of that South Germany region, um, from 1180 to 1918. So that's more recent than I would have anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, Germany had royals right up until World War I. Yeah. Germany doesn't use a king, (laughs) do they? (laughs) Nope. Not anymore. Uh, so his childhood, like so many other royals of history in general, was deeply sad. Yeah. His parents were King Maximilian II of Bavaria and Maria of Prussia, and they were strict and cold and very distant. You mean German? Yeah. They raised their sons Ludwig and Otto with more of an emphasis on, like, the burdens of their royal duty instead of, you know, love and compassion. No Germans. place for that in a royal household, especially a German royal household. They were not allowed to associate with other children. Uh, In contact with their parents was kept to a minimum. And this is actually at the suggestion of their tutors. They they thought that, like, if you keep the boys away from their parents, it's going to promote independence. It's going to make them, you know, strong, independent boys. I'm pretty sure we did a series of experiments in, like, the 50s or 60s that proved that that's not true. Yes, it's called neglect. (laughs) So once... When asked if he may wish to be accompanied by his son on his daily walks, King Maximilian declined, uh, telling his advisors, But what am I to say to him? After all, my son takes no interest in what other people tell him. What would I ever talk to my son and heir about? (laughs) 
the last one was an editorial from me. We have nothing in common. <laughs> but like, even as a child, Ludwig did kind of have this tendency to isolate himself. He kind of, you know, he enjoyed his own company. He wanted to like occupy his time with literature and opera in the arts. Uh, and he very much enjoyed like dressing up and play acting, at least according to his mother. Dressing up like, like dressing up or putting on the good later hose. Dressing up, I think just like putting on costumes. Ah, yeah. I don't think dresses necessarily, but just like he wanted to like put on old costumes and act things out and, you know, use his imagination. I'm just trying to assess out how interesting he actually was. So <laughs> if he'd been uh, dressing up, this would be an even better story. So from an early age, he had this very vivid imagination and a flair for the dramatic. Uh, it probably didn't hurt that he spent most of his time at Castle Hohenschwango, uh, which was, I, I have no idea if I pronounced that right. I just kind of went for it. Uh, this is a fantasy castle in the Gothic revival story, Gothic revival style his family had built near Alp Lake. Did you just call it a fantasy castle like the architect was a unicorn? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this, it's literally kind of the style we're talking about. It's like the castle a unicorn would be in. I know, it built with a little hard hat. <laughs> <laughs> you would ride a unicorn up to these castles. <laughs> so the castle itself was decorated in frescoes and paintings drawn from medieval German legends and poetry, uh, particularly that of Lohengrin, which is a legendary knight of the Holy Grail who traveled on a boat pulled by swans. It's just kind of enjoy this aesthetic because it's going to come up a lot. <laughs> I just don't trust swans to be very good, like beasts of burden. <laughs> At the age of 15, Ludwig attended a performance of the Wagner opera Lohengrin, uh, which is an event that would prove to be particularly formative. Ludwig himself would remain an ardent admirer of, of Wagner for the rest of his life. Oh, no. He, big fan of Wagner. Oh, like, no. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to it. <laughs> so although he did like to kind of keep to himself, he wasn't entirely without friends. Uh, so while he was younger, he struck up a lifelong friendship with his cousin, who was um, Duchess Elizabeth in Bavaria, who would later become the much beloved Empress Sisi of Austria. And she deserves an episode in her own right. She's also very cool and also, like, very beloved in Austria and Hungary. Oh, good. Yeah. Also, sad royal childhood. Very traumatic just experience of being a royal. So, just fun all around. I mean, when your parents are first cousins, like, it kind of... Yeah. The two had a lot in common. They liked to behave unconventionally. They preferred their own company, and they hated the constraints of court life. So, they were basically Bavarian punks? Yeah, kind of. I feel like more so like just Bavarian, like awkward nerds, awkward theater kids. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call him punk. He's a theater kid. Oh. And I say this as a former theater kid. Okay. So it's like someone now who bases their entire personality on Hamilton. He's basing his entire personality on this opera that he saw. Yeah. If he grew up in our generation, he would be a big fan of Glee. Oof. Oh. All right. So <laughs> closer to home was Prince Paul, who was a member of the wealthy Thurn and Taxis family, who became Ludwig's aide de camp in uh, 1863. Aide de camp? I don't know. I'm maybe pronouncing that. Funny. What is that? Like I am. Aide de camp. It's kind of like a personal secretary slash assistant. Ah, his bitch. But okay. like fancy. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like some other royal, <laughs> royal adjacent person. So like they have their own status. They're not like the help. But they, you know, they have this kind of role to serve the king, our future king in this case. I'm, I'm picturing um, kind of like in, in Mulan how uh, Shang had that um, the guy with the mustache that was always like writing stuff down. That guy. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, so Paul shared Ludwig's passion for Wagner and together the two would often stage scenes from his operas together. Like I said. Theater kids. <laughs> uh, there were rumors, of course, that the mm -hmm. nature of their relationship was a lot more intimate than that. It is generally just kind of accepted now that Ludwig was attracted to men. He was gay, or whatever the equivalent of, like, well, I don't know, not necessarily like how he would have identified, because that wasn't a concept in this time, but you know what I mean. He liked Dick. <laughs> yes. Uh, his personal diaries more or less confirmed this. But he was also a very devout Catholic, so he spent most of his life trying to suppress those desires. All of this adds up. Theater kid, like, stress up, hung out with a dude most of the time. His other best friend was a girl. <laughs> Catholic. That being said, whatever Ludwig and Paul, like, may have felt for each other, like, there's nothing we can point to to prove, like, anything actually ever happened between them. Um, they did send some very lovely letters to each other, and I'm going to quote one here because it's very cute. 
Uh, So from Paul to Ludwig, he writes, Dear and beloved Ludwig, I am just finishing my diary with the thought of the beautiful hours which we spent together that evening a week ago, which made me the happiest man on earth. Oh, Ludwig, Ludwig, I am consecrated to you. How my heart beats when I see a light in your window. Gay. <laughs> like, these boys were in love. You can't tell me that they were not. It reminds me of, what was it, Emily Dickinson and her um, gal pal? Oh, yeah. yeah. They were just such close friends, Emily. <laughs> very, very close roommates. <laughs> That's why they wrote all those letters about kissing each other. <laughs> Uh, I just, I love how people can't, like, sometimes can't grasp the concept that people before, like, before, like, the early 1900s, like, like, also were gay. People have been gay for centuries, yes. Forever. (laughs) This is not a new thing. Since the beginning of time. For millennia. (laughs) Uh, So, in 1864, Ludwig ascended to the throne as King of Bavaria. This is, I should note, this is at a time when Germany wasn't Germany yet. It was a lot of different... German-speaking kingdoms, and Bavaria was one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he ascended to the throne after his father's sudden illness and death. He was only 18, and like most sad royals that we've covered, felt completely unprepared for the realities of leadership. This is around the same time as the Brothers Grimm, Um, correct-ish? You would have to remind me. I honestly couldn't tell you. Expecting me to remember my own subjects. <laughs> well, it just reminded me because the whole Germany wasn't Germany. Germany was actually yeah. a collection of smaller um, principalities, if you will. Yeah, principalities is a good word for it. Little different little kingdoms. Which I guess is how a lot of Europe was like back, which is why like mm-hmm. in stories you'll have, yes, the king of the kingdom of blah, blah, blah. King of this one region that still kind of exists, but isn't considered its own state anymore. Are you looking the grim thing up? Am I yeah, like, just, no, no. Okay. Um, they're, they're I wasn't bo- sure if I was delaying for no reason. No, their, their first book was published in 1812, so. Okay, so after this. So he probably would have read some Grimm's books. I would almost guarantee it just because of who he was as a person. Everyone did. Yeah. A decade later, looking back on this time, uh, Ludwig would write, I became king much too early. I had not learned enough. Suddenly, I was snatched away from my book and set to the throne. Books and set on the throne. I am still trying to learn. It seems to be a common theme with a lot of um, doomed European royals. Yeah, I feel like, especially now, as you know, a thirty-three-year-old and realizing that all the adults in my life who you think are adults were faking it the whole time because no one ever actually feels like an adult. <laughs> I just feel like there should like, be. A- I feel like it's a common experience, and especially when your responsibilities are so large. There should be, like, an age range for being a king um, or someone in in political power. So, like, you have to be at least 35, but younger than, like, 70. Uh, So, despite his youth, or maybe because of it, uh, Ludwig was very popular with his subjects. Uh, Women, in particular, (laughs) ironically enough. Uh, They were a fan of his dark, brooding looks, and he was actually pretty cute. I'll send you a picture afterwards. Uh, he was generally generally regarded as one of the better-looking kings of Europe, which, if you've seen the Habsburgs, was not that hard. <laughs> yeah, the, the bar is very, very, very low. <laughs> it was quite a lot of inbreeding <laughs> among years. So it just meant that his eyes were both pointing in the right direction. <laughs> he didn't do a lot to shake up the politics of the time in any real way. He kind of just continued what his father had put in place and retained all his ministers. He wasn't super, like... Progressive, or not necessarily not progressive, but just like he didn't want to do it. He didn't, he wasn't into change. Like that wasn't his goal. So during his early reign and throughout really most of his life, he was more interested in art, music, and architecture. And one of his first acts as king was to bring his hero Wagner to Munich. See, that's the only issue I've had with him so far, and I don't think it's necessarily (laughs) Wagner's fault. I think it's Hitler's fault. For Wagner, uh, Ludwig was something of a savior. Wagner had just spent 12 years being exiled from Germany because of his political activities. He was uh, very left-wing, I guess, in Bavaria in general. is a very kind of conservative region. Uh, So that ban had only been lifted like two years before, so he's just barely allowed back into Germany at this point. Uh, He was also on the run from numerous creditors, (laughs) so Ludwig Ah. promised not only that he was going to settle his considerable debts, but he would stage uh, Tristan Unuzold, which is an unproduced opera with a reputation of being impossible to sing. Didn't a movie based on that come out with some hot people in it? It's a very old legend. I think I, I came across it. Romeo and Juliet before Romeo and Juliet ever was a thing. It's a Celtic legend, I think. 
Uh, yeah, I think I came across it when I was doing uh, um, King Arthur. And yes, mm-hmm. a movie did come out starring oh, James yeah. Franco. So James Franco and who was the lady in that one? Sophia Miles. Okay, yeah. Oh, Henry Cavill's in it. <clears throat> is he? Yeah, and Mark Strong. Damn. Yeah, Mark Strong is in it. I remember Mark Strong. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Wagner, of course, took Ludwig up in his offer. And on June 10th, 1865, Tristan Anunzold Un- is old, <laughs> debuted in Munich, the first Wagner opera, opera to premiere in almost 15 years. Uh, so it is very likely that if he had never had Ludwig's support, Wagner's career would have never recovered from his exile. Um, I feel like that might have prevented a couple things down the line, but that's not their fault. It's not their fault. <laughs> it's not their fault. The correspondence between the two of them at the time is peppered with kind of a lot of the same kind of passionate kind of phrases you'll see in Ludwig's letters from Prince Paul. Um, it, it's very unlikely there was ever sort of any sort of relationship between them. Like the dynamic, at least to me, seems to be Ludwig was super infatuated with Wagner um, and Wagner was flattering him because Ludwig was literally paying him a yearly income and like gave him a house to work in. Like, yeah, I mean, that checks out. He's the king. And he's literally, like, providing your whole livelihood. (laughs) You're going to be very flattering in all of your letters. Uh, So Wagner's time in Munich was (sighs) short-lived. During his stay there, he carried on a rather indiscreet affair with uh, Cosima von Bülow, who is the wife of the man who would be conducting his opera. Oh, no. (sighs) So in April of that year, just before the premiere, she gave birth to a daughter who she named Isolde. Of course, uh, an open acknowledgement, probably, that the baby was not her husband's, but was, in fact, Wagner's. Bitch, if you're going to do that, you got to be subtle. So this is the especially gross part. Uh, Cosima was 24 years younger than Wagner, uh, and she herself was the illegitimate daughter of composer Franz Liszt, who was Wagner's friend. Like, just in case you needed, like, an additional layer of ick on everything. Uh, I'm going to need you to, like, make a chart, like, draw... <laughs> So, <laughs> Wagner and Liszt were friends. Uh-huh. Liszt had an illegitimate daughter named Cosima. Okay. Cosima was married to some other guy, Von Bülow. He doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. He was, uh, was going to be conducting Wagner's opera. Okay. Yeah. It's all terrible. <laughs> so, basically, Wagner did stuff with his friend's daughter mm-hmm. and also hired said Slash daughter's conductor's wife. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Good job, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I don't know which order any of those things happened in. If he, like, hired the conductor. I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> I would hope that he was friends with her father first, because that seems like the... <laughs> Ooh, maybe he hired her husband as a favor, because it was his friend's Possibly. son-in-law. And then he was like, oh, wait, she's hot now. Hey, Ugh. I'm also going to shut up your wife. <laughs> so... The whole debacle scandalized, like, the very conservative Munich. And in between, like, this and just, like, Wagner's meddling in local politics, like, Ludwig was finally forced by his ministers to ask Wagner to leave the city in December of 1865. Um, And I'm just going to note here, this really is kind of apropos of nothing, but uh, Wagner was an asshole, as we have seen. Um, He was also deeply anti-Semitic. Yeah. uh... (laughs) Like, vocally so. Uh, So... That do with that what you will. Not an uncommon sentiment. Yeah, not an uncommon sentiment for those, like, day and age. Um, I just didn't want it to not be mentioned since we're talking about Wagner a lot. Ludwig did call him out on the latter for what it is worth, but he also, like, continued to support him regardless. So that did nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, so after Wagner's exile, um, Ludwig installed him in a villa near Lake, Lake Lucerne in Switzerland. Uh, and for a while, his friend Paul acted as a secret messenger between the two. Uh, and for several months after Wagner's departure, Ludwig himself toyed with the idea of abdicating the throne entirely in order to follow the composer to Switzerland. Uh, but Paul and Wagner eventually managed to talk him out of that idea. Yeah, he needs to, to chill a little <laughs> he's, bit. He's... He's very, very passionate. That's the best word I can think of. Yeah, I'm very into my brother, my brother and me, but I'm not going to follow them <laughs> on tour. You're not going to drop everything to like fish style, like follow them across the country. No, I mean, I thought it was a bit of a stretch to pay what I paid for tickets. <laughs> 
sadly, it's also around this time that Paul and Ludwig fell out. Um, the reasons are kind of unclear. I wasn't able to really figure this out. Um, it's likely that there were people in court who were kind of jealous of their relationship and kind of took to spreading malicious rumors about Paul. Um, it also seemed that the relationship itself like, was kind of precarious. Like There wasn't so much like one major incident. It was just like a lot of perceived mistakes and slights and they kind of added up over time and finally they just Ludwig kind of just broke it all off this is one of their so one of the things like in movies about like courts and stuff where it's like 90 percent of the problems could be fixed by just talking yeah <laughs> so in november of 1866 paul was relieved from his duties at Lu- as Ludwig's aide-de-camp and when Paul eventually became engaged to an opera singer named Elise Cruiser, he and Ludwig never saw each other again. Yeah, I can probably figure out why. <laughs> yeah, Paul's, his whole story is so sad. And I'm, I deeply regret reading his Wikipedia page. And I'm now going to share it with you because if I have to have this story in my heart, so does everybody else. I mean, I was feeling a touch too happy, so... So the TLDR of all of it is after his marriage to Elise, his family stripped him of all his titles because she was a commoner. Uh, He never actually really reconciled with him, despite trying. Um, And even his attempts at an acting career ended with him being hissed off the stage. So they had a bad breakup. Yeah. Uh, And then after all that, uh, Paul came down with tuberculosis. His wife left him and eloped with another man and he died alone in 1879. Well, that's sad. Yeah, like I said, I wish I hadn't read that far into his Wikipedia page. I wish I had stopped at the part where he became estranged from Ludwig and closed the tab. But I didn't. I read the whole thing, and now I'm sad. And now all of you have to be sad, too. So many Wikipedia pages just opened. (laughs) So it was expected, of course, that the king himself would eventually marry and produce an heir, as you do. (sighs) Ludwig, of course, faced all the usual pressures to do so. And finally, in January of 1867, about three years after he became king, uh, he became engaged to Duchess Sophie in Bavaria, who was, of course, his cousin. (laughs) Well, yes. Um, And also the youngest sister of Empress Cece, his good friend. I'm sure this is going to go great. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, like at first, it seemed like a really good match, at least, you know, as good of a match as you could get, considering Ludwig was not at all into women as a general concept. I feel like it would have been a better <laughs> match if she wasn't related to him. I mean, there's that too, but I mean, they're royals. What do you Just expect? Just bring in some fresh blood. Like, mix it up a little. <laughs> Make sure your babies have all the ears that they're required to have. The two shared a deep love for Wagner and would often refer to each other in letters as Elsa and Heinrich. Uh, characters from Wagner's Lonegren. Fucking nerds! All of them! <laughs> Despite this, Ludwig repeatedly postponed the wedding until finally in October of that same year, the engagement was broken off. Um, and again, reasons for this, very unclear. Um, despite the obvious he liked dick that's why (laughs) despite the obvious consideration that ludwig just wasn't that interested in marriage it's also kind of speculated that sophie may have gotten a little too close with a court photographer in that kind of say photographer yeah i don't know that's all the that's all the detail i have on that did did photography (laughs) exist yeah what what year is this uh 1867 when did we get photography (laughs) This feels like another episode. 1826. Photography has been around for a hell of a long time. I was to say, there are photos of <laughs> Ludwig that I will send. All right. Well, so yeah. But um, in the end, I mean, Sophie did okay for herself. She married Prince Ferdinand, who is Duke, and Al- Duke of Alençon. Uh, and Ludwig even attended the reception. So it doesn't sound like it was a bitter breakup. They just didn't get married. I don't know. If he didn't get an invite to the ceremony, just the reception... Apparently, he kind of like showed up very unexpectedly. To the, I assume he got an invite because of who he was. Like, you can't not invite him. He's like one the of those king. people that you invite, but you don't think they're going to show up. Yeah, and then he kind of just showed up. Ludwig himself, of course, would never marry. Um, and in the years following his engagement, he began to withdraw from public and political life. So and I assume <laughs> this is where the Mad King starts. A little bit. So his general disinterest in politics, it grew even more pronounced after what was um, called the Seven Weeks War with Prussia. And this was, we're going back in time a couple of years, but this was in the summer of 1866, literally just like two years after he became king. So this was Austria against Prussia. Ludwig supported Austria, and they were soundly defeated. Where is um, Prussia so f- again? Prussia is kind of like Germany. 
are some conglomeration of pre-Germany. Okay. Yeah. At this point, Bavaria was forced to sign a mutual defense treaty with Prussia, and Ludwig was stripped of his sovereign power. So he's still, like, king, but he's not really king. You know? Cool. But he, he doesn't have any real power at this point. Um, this marked the early beginnings of the first unified German state. Like we said, this is pre-German. <laughs> Pre-Germany. So in 1870, Bavaria officially became part of the German Empire, albeit with a privileged status that allowed the state to retain its own diplomatic corps in its own army. So Ludwig, of course, he was still considered a king at this point. He was king of Bavaria, but he has no real power. He is kind of a head of state. He is a constitutional monarch. More of a ceremonial position. <laughs> yeah, in the vein of Queen Elizabeth II. Like, yes, he's king, but no one actually listens to him. It's a mascot. <laughs> Yeah, so very ceremonial. Um, it's also around this time that Ludwig began to turn his attention to other pursuits, namely the building of huge and elaborate castles <laughs> that cost yeah. millions and millions and millions of dollars. Isn't Germany known for their like castles, though? Yeah, and this is and this guy is why. There you go. <laughs> if anything, it seems that um, the construction of these castles allowed Ludwig to bring these like grandiose visions he have like. It's bringing a Wagner opera into real life. Oh, God. But also, like, it's a way for him to escape into a fantasy where he could still feel like a real king. <laughs> um, Sorry, it's very sad, but it's also kind of dumb. Anyway, I was going to say, he's also, like, just like all the nobles of his time, absolutely bonkers rich. So, like, why the fuck not <laughs> go build a bunch of castle? That's fair. <laughs> so the first of these castles is Neuschwanstein, <laughs> which is... The massive Disney-esque castle on top of a cliff ridge. Like, if you Google Disney castle, this will come up. It is the very stereotypical medieval castle. It's also not impossible that the original Sleeping Beauty castle was probably based a little bit on these castles. Oh, yeah. No, this one actually is exactly the one that Walt Disney apparently later used as the model for Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland in Disney World. Just a little bit bigger. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, and it was built just actually a few miles from his childhood, ho childhood home of Hohenschwango. <laughs> Hohenschwango? I can't pronounce that. It is my intention, Ludwig wrote, wrote to Wagner, to rebuild the old castle ruin of Hohenschwango in the authentic style of the old German knight's castles. And I must confess to you that I am looking very for forward very much to living there one day in three years. <laughs> I, it took a little longer than that. <laughs> So Ludwig laid the foundation stone of Neuschwanstein, uh, which translates to New Swanstone Castle, in 1884. Um, I didn't write down the year. He laid that down in 1869. <laughs> but it was 1884, almost 15 years later, before the castle was actually ready for occupancy. Um, and in fact, it was never fully completed. If it had... I appreciate that you just pulled a year <laughs> out of your ass for that, though. I did the math real quick. <laughs> Um, if it had, the castle itself would have had more than 200 interior rooms, including a cavernous singer's hall for opera performances, but no more than 15 rooms were ever actually finished. This is some uh, Winchester Mystery House nonsense. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, what was completed was at the cutting edge of innovation for the late 19th century, namely electric lighting, uh, flush toilets, and an electric buzzer system for summoning servants. So, very advanced castle, despite looking like something out of 1256. The design of the building itself consists of numerous towers, ornamental turrets, gables, balconies, pinnacles, sculptures, modeled all on this romantic idea of a fairy tale castle. So altogether, the cost of constructions during Ludwig's lifetime amounted to around 6.2 million marks, uh, equivalent to about 43 million euros today. That's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's quite a bit of money. It's not the biggest figure I will cite during this episode. I don't know what the um, conversion rate is euros might as well be monopoly money 45 million oh, it's, that's nothing it's a, like 1.6 or something i don't remember our military eats that for breakfast <laughs> uh so ludwig took a keen interest in every detail of the design and decoration of neuschwanstein and in fact with every castle he built um so commenting on a mural depicting the story of lohengrin he notes his majesty wishes that the ship be placed further from the shore that Lohengrin's neck be less tilted, that the chain from the ship to the swan be of gold and not of roses, and finally, that the style of castle shall be kept medieval. Of course. This was one mural. This is the <laughs> level of micromanaging that we will see from uh, 
good old Mad King. I mean, as far as like giving rich people something to do, like this is maybe the least (laughs) destructive. We could have like an Elon Musk situation. So he could have real power and he could be starting wars. This is way more productive. Uh, The next palace he started was Linderhof Palace, um, which is located just about an hour from Abat Neuschonstein. It's near the village of Atal. And it is the smallest of the castles built by Ludwig. It's actually very cute. It's very compact. 400 rooms. (laughs) Um, It's like really like eight. It's very small. Uh, It is the only one, unsurprisingly, that actually he saw completed because of the size. (laughs) While he had originally set out to enlarge the hunting lodge that was kind of already on the land, you know, Uh Versailles style, which is going to be a trend. Um, He ultimately decided he would tear that whole thing down and in 1874 began to rebuild a new palace on the land inspired by, of course, the Petit Trianon in the Palace of Versailles. He just generally was a big fan of Louis XIV. Is that... Because I know that Marie Antoinette had her own little, like, cottage where she could pretend to be a milkmaid. Is that what he's going to do? Is he going to have, like, little braids and, like... Not quite. That was the Petit Trianon that you're thinking of. Okay. Of course, the Petit Trianon for something that's supposed to be kind of, like... Pastoral is very much still like well, she was still a, a rich bitch, like of <laughs> yeah. course. So, like I said, though it's very small, the palace is decked out in full Rococo glory and even includes its own hall of mirrors. You know, like all cottages have. Yeah, <laughs> it's also a much more private setting than Ludwig's other palaces. So, the dining room is kind of famous for its table. Weirdly <laughs> enough, so <laughs> by means of like this crank mechanism, the dining room table can actually be lowered downstairs into the kitchen. So that Ludwig's staff could set the table without actually having to interact with the Like in Hogwarts? Yes. (laughs) He has a Hogwarts table? Yeah. He didn't, like, I don't think it was an I'm above you, so I don't want to see you sort of thing. I think it was literally just like, he didn't, he wanted to be alone. He was very reclusive in that way. He didn't want to see other people and he didn't want other people to see him. I mean, that's cool as shit. (laughs) He never hosted guests for dinner, uh, but the table was always set for at least three or four. Oof. And this is where the cold open comes in. Oof. Uh, so this way reported one of the king's cooks. Although the king always sits down to eat alone, he does not feel alone after all. He believes himself in the company of Louis XIV and Louis XV and their lady friends, Madame Pompadour and Madame Matinal. He even greets them now and then and carries on conversations with them as though he really had them as guests at his table. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. He imagined that he was eating with the king's mistresses? Yeah, they're the ones with any real power. Not tell that to Marie Antoinette. <laughs> I was going to say, besides Marie Antoinette, can you name a French queen? Uh, uh, I This just occurred to me, too. Like, I couldn't tell you who Louis XIV was married to. Because um, the queens didn't have the power. The mistresses did. Like, the mistress was an official position that was, like, a political position. Um, no, give me a second. I can name a French queen. Madame Pompadour is the more interesting one anyway. Yeah, I feel like someone cool <laughs> played her in Marie Antoinette, but I can't remember. Uh, Madame Pompadour was pre-Marie Antoinette. Wait a minute. Um, there's a... I'm trying to think of the name of the mistress in Marie Antoinette. It was Madame... No. I forget. Uh, Madame Pompadour was in um, Doctor Who, and she was played by yes. Sophia Miles, so... yes. Weird, weird double cameo by Sophia Miles in this episode. Just playing famous French and German Um, ladies. I think it was Asia Argento who was in Marie Antoinette. I don't remember the name of the mistress, though. It's escaping me. Yeah, she was... Someone right in. She was the one that was fucking rip-torn. Yeah. God, that movie was wild. Okay. I love that movie. Have we done Marie Antoinette? No, it's on my list. (laughs) Right, you wanted to read the book, and then... Yeah, and then that never happened. We'll, we'll get there. We will do an episode of Marie Antoinette. I promise. I may not ever actually finish the book, but I will still do an episode eventually. At this point, we've talked about her enough that I feel like we've covered her, but God damn it, I will do an episode. Have I mentioned that my sister didn't know she was a real person uh, until... Really? <laughs> um, yeah. Did she think Sofia Coppola invented her for the movie? Or I don't know what was going through her mind. Um, this woman is a teacher now. She was pre-med, but... The movie came out, and I was having a conversation with her, and I said something, and my sister, who is 11 years older than me, mind you, was like, that was based on a real person? (laughs) They're all real. Wow. Anyway, she doesn't listen to this, so she can't be embarrassed, but... (laughs) I mean, you'll see her at the wedding, so you'll know. (laughs) 
Uh, so the grounds of Linderhof are just as opulent as the palace itself. Um, there are formal gardens in the Renaissance and Baroque styles, as well as a hut and grotto inspired by Wagner's operas. Uh, the oh. latter <laughs> yeah, features a man-made lake on which Ludwig enjoyed to be rowed across in a golden swan boat. I am picturing him with a little parasol and a big yeah. hat. So just everything about his life is so theatrical, and I really respect that. Like, if I could build myself a castle and have myself a lake with a little swan boat that people would carry across me, across the lake in, that sounds great. Yeah, I feel Good like if, <laughs> if he was in a movie, um, he would be played by that guy from Will and Grace. Uh, um, I know. I know who you're talking about. I can't, I can't think of anybody's name. Sean Hayes. Yes, thank you. He'd be played by Sean Hayes. This is going to, you're going to hate this, but actually, Timothy Chalamet would make a good bad Fuck thing. Fuck off. <laughs> He's got the look. What, anyway. a blank-faced, generic man? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Granted, I haven't seen a picture of this man, but. I should, I will send you a picture. And you tell me this kid is not um, Timothy Chalamet. No, when I picture him, though, I do picture Tom Hollander in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean when he was playing um, Beckett. That shitty guy from the East India Trading Company. <laughs> it's a it's a deep cut. Yeah, yeah I, I've yeah yeah. He's a Timothy Chalamet. Maybe I'll change my mind about Timot Timotu Chalamet after I watch the new Wes Anderson. But as it stands, <laughs> he's a non-entity. Uh, so one last note on Linderhoff before we move from Linderhoff. We keep getting distracted on this one. Uh, the construction cost Ludwig another 8 million marks, even more than his castle, Neuschwanstein. So the the bills just keep ramping up. And what is 800 marks? Like 750? Um, It would be, let's see, the other one was about 6 million. It'd be probably about $60 million. Okay. I don't so- know. I'm, I'm making some wild estimates there. I'm not actually doing the math on that. Uh, of course not. So, <laughs> uh, the largest and final of Ludwig's castles um, is Heron Kimsey, uh, which sits on an island in the middle of Kimsey Lake. The island, formerly the site of an Augustinian monastery, was purchased by Ludwig in 1873. And I'm pretty sure this is the castle I'm going to go see. Um, so, fingers crossed. Uh, Ludwig first had the old monastery converted into a residence before deciding he was going to build an entirely new palace based, again, on Versailles. In 1878. God. This is going to be another ho- another homage to Louis XIV. Um, and the facade of the palace is, like, reconci- recognizably Versailles. Um, it's also got, like, a near copy of the Hall of Mirrors that Ludwig constructed inside. Uh, and like all his palaces, he regularly supervised the building process, though he was only ever able to stay at the palace for a few days in 1885. Uh, even then, the palace remained unfinished with only a handful of rooms completed. Great Overall, through. Yep. Uh, overall, the cost of construction topped another 16.5 million marks. Jesus. Which, in two days' money, would be $250 million. <sighs> this was more than Neuschwanstein and Litterhoff put together. So, some palace. <laughs> it is some palace. To his credit, and contrary to frequent claims at the time, Ludwig never actually used public funds to build his castle. Each of his projects was funded using his private income. Now, did some of that income come from the state? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm a little concerned that he just has that much money doing nothing. I mean, that's that's being a noble. You're just rich. Would he invest well? Yeah. <laughs> the castles did, however, put him deeply into debt. Um, and as his plans for each new palace quickly escalated, Ludwig took out more and more loans. And by 1885, he was 14 million marks in debt. So probably about $200 million. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Throughout it all, Ludwig had become more and more reclusive. He slept during the day and wandered his castles at night. Uh, and during the winters, he'd go for nighttime sleigh rides in medieval costumes in custom-made sleighs. <laughs> but, I mean, besides all that, like, he was still very popular with the people of Bavaria, so he did have that going for him. He's like a character at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's kind of just a fun, goofy guy. <laughs> So, against the recommendations of his financial ministers, Ludwig insisted that construction on his palaces continue despite, you know, his insurmountable debt. Uh, The foreign banks who held that debt threatened to seize his property, and then Ludwig threatened suicide in return. I mean, everything's going great. (laughs) I just, he's doing this at roughly the same time as Sarah Winchester was losing her mind in San Jose, and I feel like if they just, like, hung out, we would have gotten 
the best castle ever. Oh, that would have been great. Let Sarah, yeah. Let Sarah Winchester design a castle. Also roughly-ish around the same time as H.H. Holmes. I'm saying we need a brain trust (laughs) Mm, uh, mm. with turrets and mirror rooms and ghost shoots and 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 murder chambers and murder chambers and and greased shoots that lead down to the basement crematory we could have gotten you a know, lot done i but i like ludwig and i like sarah winchester i don't want them in the same company as h.h H. holmes who was a gremlin boy you need one guy that no one likes <laughs> all classic trios yeah i mean <laughs> you have um that very well-known trio with one shithead in it um han solo <laughs> excuse me <laughs> sure or or harry ron and hermione you have <laughs> harry <laughs> yeah of course all he did was bitch I- so <laughs> ludwig's ministers worried that uh, a seizure of the king's properties would bankrupt the country uh decided now was the time to act so in 1886, a contingent of rebellious ministers led by a guy named Maximilian Kant von Holstein. Yeah, he sounds like someone who would lead a rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, they compiled a report of all of Ludwig's bizarre behavior in an effort to cast doubt on his fitness to rule. Uh, so this report included details such as Ludwig's pathological shyness, his disinterest in politics, his penchant for dining outdoors in the winter and wearing heavy overcoats in the summer. Uh, as well as apparently some abusive, violent threats to his servants. Cool. Uh, but how much of this is true is debatable because von Holstein was not above bribery and threats himself. <laughs> so they presented this to Otto von Bismarck, who was you know the leader of Germany at the time, um, and even he like kind of didn't buy it. He was he kind of understood that they had everything to gain from deposing Ludwig, but he also didn't do anything in support of Ludwig either. Okay, so neutral. So, yeah. Regardless, the report was finalized in June of 1886 and was signed by four psychiatrists, uh, none of which, uh, um, oh, sorry, all declaring the king suffered from paranoia and was unfit to rule. Of the four men who endorsed the report, none of them had ever actually examined Ludwig, and only one, this guy named Dr. Gooden, had ever actually met him. He had met him, like, 12 years previously. Okay. So that's specious. To begin with, uh, conveniently, <laughs> Ludwig's younger brother Otto was also considered insane, which the conspirators used as evidence of hereditary insanity. I mean, that's what you get for naming your kids Ludwig and Otto. Like, those are the names of crazy kings. I mean, that's what you get for being a royal. <laughs> yeah. Again, just expand the gene pool. So Ludwig was officially deposed on June 10th, 1886, and after a brief showdown at Neuschwanstein, he was taken into custody while the government of Bavaria declared that his uncle, Prince Leopold, was regent. <laughs> and on June 12th, two days after this, Ludwig was transported to Castleburg, where he was placed under house arrest. The very next day, Ludwig and his newly appointed psychiatrist, Dr. Guden, were found dead, floating in the shallow waters of Lake Starnberg. What? And now we get to the murder mystery portion of the episode. <laughs> Jesus, I didn't know we were doing this. <laughs> this story has everything. <laughs> the mystery surrounding Ludwig's death, this could probably be an episode in its own right if you really wanted to like piece through all the evidence. I'm just going to summarize because I don't know how long we've been recording, but we're nearing the end. So following dinner on June 13th, Ludwig went for a stroll on the grounds of Castleburg. Prior his to his arrival, like the entire castle had been outfitted with bars on the windows and locks on the door, like he was under house arrest, and whenever he was outside of the castle, he was supposed to be accompanied by someone. I thought you were just going to stop with the whole castle had been outfitted with bars, and I would have believed that. <laughs> the drinking kind. hmm I mean, if you're going to be under house arrest. On this evening, it was Dr. Gooden who was going to take this walk with him. There are conflicting reports as to whether the walk was Ludwig I- Ludwig's idea or it was the doctor's idea. Um, some narratives do suggest that it was the latter and that Gooden explicitly told his aides not to join them, which, if true, very suspicious. Yes, it is big if true. <laughs> um, they were last seen at 6.30 and expected to return by 8, but when the hour came and went, a search was launched. Their bodies were found at 10.30 that evening in the waters of the lake. Um, both of them had their head and shoulders floating above the surface, uh, and Ludwig's watch was stopped at 6.54. I'm pretty sure I just said Vach because I'm so used to... You did, but 
I was going to let it slide. (laughs) I am so used to converting those W's to V's. Uh, So (laughs) the official story is that Ludwig's death was a suicide and that Dr. Guden had perished attempting to save the king's life. Many, however, believe that Ludwig was murdered by his enemies during an escape attempt. Yeah. So some years later, after the death of Ludwig's personal fisherman, and no, I have no other details as to what that job entails. I'm glad you got ahead of me on that one. <laughs> this guy, Jake Little, he, um, he wrote some notes that were found after his death in which he describes waiting for the king on the shores of Lake Starnberg with a boat ready to meet him and row him out into the lake where loyalists were going to wait and help him escape. Mm. Um, so according to Little, as Ludwig stepped out onto the boat, a shot rang out and the king fell dead against the bow of the boat. Um, and then Guden, because he was a witness, was subsequently killed as well. Um, no autopsy was ever done on Guden, but his body allegedly showed signs of like strangulation and blows to the head. Huh. But again, that's just people saying stuff. Who knows? <laughs> Further support for this theory comes from the story... In the form of a story told by a Munich banker named Detlev Uttermol, uh, who came forward in 2007. So, according to Uttermol, when he was 10 years old, he and his mother were invited to coffee and cakes by one Countess Josephine von Verbakonitz, the best name, um, who had who was charged with looking after some of like the Wittelsbach family assets, so the royal family that Ludwig was a member of. Mm-hmm. Um, so during this gathering, she opens up a chest and brings out this old gray coat. And she claims that it's the coat Ludwig was wearing on the day that he died. And now she's going to show everyone the truth of the story. Um, and in the back, Udermol claims he could see two distinct bullet holes. This is a very good story. It is completely impossible to verify. So it is an old man's recollection of a childhood event. So that's one thing on its own. But then you have to believe that. One, like the countess, the coat was actually Ludwig's. Um, and there's no way of knowing if it was. Um, and there's no way to ever verify that because if it did exist, it was lost after a fire at the countess's home in 1973. How convenient. In which both she and her husband perished. This is my thing. What if that's part of the conspiracy? Well, <laughs> in 1973, I don't think any think anyone is super invested in uh keeping things hidden anymore but you would think (laughs) however for what it's worth the official autopsy makes no mention of bullet wounds in ludwig's body but it also like does mention there was no water found in his lungs so did he really drowned is the question Maybe his uh, physician was or psychiatrist was hired to murder him, and he uh, strangled him and then dumped him in the lake. Or well, then why would he be dead? Never mind. I don't know if I really lead one way or the other. I think probably the most the simplest explanation is probably that Ludwig did try to attempt suicide, and that like when the doctor went to try and save him, he got like knocked out or something. Like Ludwig fought back, and that's kind of how the doctor ended up dead. But I mean, I don't know. That's just like. Me guessing, I think either theory, honestly, is totally plausible. Um, <laughs> so natural causes weren't suspected? No, I mean, he, I mean, they both died. It was very could have been a flesh-eating they, virus in the in the water. I don't know. I mean, you have heard, like, I feel like there's some sort of murder case in Australia where they're actually pretty sure that what happened was, like, gases were released from the mud near the river and they inhaled them. And that's probably how they died versus, like, oh, oh, was that an episode of Thinking Sideways? Yes. I don't remember remember what the people were named, but like, I mean, maybe. Who knows? (laughs) So it was mud gas. uh, One of Ludwig's most quoted sayings was, I wish to remain an eternal enigma to myself and others. Uh, And despite the tragedy of his death, he was only 40 when he died. uh, He certainly got his wish. Three years after his death, a small memorial chapel was built at Castleburg overlooking the site where he died and a cross was erected in the lake nearby where his body was found. And then it's kind of just a little, a fun little stinger. So almost immediately after his death, Neuschwanstein was open to the public as a tourist attraction. Of course. Uh, Ironically, Ludwig's castles have now become so extremely profitable for the Bavarian state that they have paid for themselves like thousands of times over. See, he was just thinking ahead. You have to think 10 steps ahead. He was a forward thinker, like all theater kids. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yes. (laughs) So that is Mad King Ludwig. And he was a delight to research. I knew of him, but not like any great detail. So 
For some reason, I was expecting, like, a medieval king who beheaded a lot of people, but, like, he was the delightful kind of mad. Yes, he was the fun kind of mad. And, I mean, there are debates as to whether he was really, like, insane. Like, maybe he suffered from some sort of schizophrenia, but it could just be that he was kind of a weird, quirky dude. He could have just been eccentric. Like, Like, yeah. Um, yeah, we can't really trust the people who labeled him as such, so. Yeah, I do kind of picture him sounding like King Candy from Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> so, like, the Mad Hatter. Um, yeah. It's that vibe. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I don't know. But, I like him. Yeah, he's a cool guy. I'm definitely going to go see one of his castles. I'm definitely going to the church where he is buried, so I'm looking forward to that. It's not often we get a historical figure on this podcast where, at the end of it, we can be like, good dude. Yeah. Questionable friends. As usual. Um, Yeah, we'll be sure to um, post stuff to the Instagram whenever I am there. So look forward to that. Yeah, I won't have any exciting historical travel plans um, until next year. If I do end up going to the Nutcracker Museum, I will post pictures of that. Yes, yes. I need to see pictures of the Nutcracker Museum. I I think I'm very close to winning this fight. Of going to Leavenworth for your mini-moon? Yes, of going to Leavenworth instead of the coast, because there is a uh, bed and breakfast there with themed rooms, and one of them literally just looks like a room out of The Witcher, and I think that's going to be the thing I win with. I want to see pictures of that. Send me that. Oh, of course. Yeah, they have like three different themed rooms, and one is like a French palace themed, and then there's the castle room, and then it's all very cool. That's very delightful. It sounds like a cute little town. And they have a reindeer farm. And and a nutcracker museum full of ghosts. More bratwurst than you can shake a really big pretzel (laughs) stick at. I will admit, for a second there, I thought you were going to say that they had a room that was themed, and the theme was nutcrackers. No, I would rather die than sleep in that room. Uh, If you have any castle-based stories, um, you can find us on Twitter at Afternoonified and Instagram at Afternoonified. Uh, We also have GetAfternoonified.com where you can buy merch, um, send us emails, maybe send us emails with ideas for merch. Yeah. Uh, You can also uh, donate if you would like to to give us money that way. Uh, Remember to rate, subscribe, review, and all that fun stuff. And um, don't marry your cousin. No, not advisable. Okay, goodbye. Bye. We love you. I'm going to need you all to roll plus charm to do the ad. That's a five. I got a ten. Eight. All right, Travis. Buddy can manage to get out the name of the show, but not much else. Monster Pod! Sadie, Jimmy's going to be able to get out the premise, but you didn't roll high enough for any spoilers. Monster Pod is a real play Monster of the Week podcast where four government-employed idiots try to save the world. Sarah, Thomason rolled high enough to finish the ad. Releases every other Friday here on So Below Media. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.